This is Guns and Butter. And the one that always really still bothers me was David O'Brien, who was the chief science in charge of monitoring nuclear activity around the globe at Patrick Air Force Base. So he's supposed to be sitting at his U.S. Air Force computer, seeing if there's any kind of nuclear activity that might threaten our security as Americans. And what is he doing? Instead, he's on his U.S. Air Force computer on child pornography websites and chats trading in child pornography. I'm Bonnie Faulkner. Today on Guns and Butter, Dr. Lori Handrahan. Today's show, America's Traffic in Child Pornography. Lori Handrahan completed her PhD at the London School of Economics and later taught at American University in Washington, D.C. She worked as an independent consultant to the United Nations on gender equality. She is the author of Epidemic, America's Trade in Child Rape. Epidemic is a meticulously researched and documented account of rampant child pornography, abuse, and rape that has reached global dimensions. Today we discuss her research into the sadistic nature of pedophilia, the lack of data collection on a fast-growing crime wave, child rape as a profit model, the proliferation of servers, websites, pictures, and videos, online networks, child porn on government agency computers, and the powerful as perpetrators. Dr. Lori Handrahan, welcome. Thank you very much. Thank you for having me on the show. You were a professor at American University in Washington, D.C., and your career was targeted. You lost your teaching position there and have been unable to secure another position. What were you teaching at American University, and what was the reason given for you losing your job? Yeah, well, it's a very—thank you for asking the question. It's a very painful uh, subject. I was in the International Development Department in the School of International Service, and American University is still a very special place for me, and it had been my professional home um, since I was 30. So I would teach, I'd take a a term contract, teach for a year, and then I'd go back to the field and usually work for the United Nations because I I do applied social science, and my background has all been in sexual gender-based violence in, in war zones, humanitarian response. So I had been on and off at American University over a long period of time, uh, had always received very, very good student evaluations and done very good work. And I felt like the faculty were were my family. It was my, my home. The official reason that I was wrongly terminated uh, was that I couldn't keep my personal life off campus. Um, and I was being uh, by the definition of Washington, D.C., Metropolitan Police, felony-stalked. So I was felony-stalked on campus for a year and a half. And by by that, I mean uh, my students were emailed on a regular basis, my colleagues, professors, uh, my supervisors, the president of the university, the dean, the, the lawyers at the university, they were all emailed on a regular basis, uh, week in, week out, over a one-and-a-half-year period, um, the Facebook page for the School of International Service was constantly under attack, uh, and and it was it was really really awful. What AU asked me to do was not to report the crime of stalking, 
because uh, it, it would make the university look bad, they felt, and that as long as I continued to perform at outstanding professional levels, uh, they promised me I wouldn't lose my job. Um, so they, they made, made me endure and, and cover up a crime and, and be a, a victim of that crime on campus for a year and a half. And then they terminated me because I couldn't stop that crime. Well, why were you being stalked? Why were you and your colleagues and your students being stalked? Uh, I was being stalked by my ex-husband and his attorney. And I was being stalked because my two-year-old daughter was raped by her father uh, at the age of two. And she was confirmed for that rape by the sexual assault medical examiners. Uh, unanimous, the entire team had a unanimous decision on that. And then she was put into his sole custody in a very corrupt family courtroom in Maine, Judge Jeff Moskowitz. Uh, family courts have become a secure supply line for pedophiles to obtain uh, control and access to their children. That's pretty well known now. Um, and I refuse to be silent. The sad thing is, and, and with a lot of the, the headlines now about Larry Nasser and Weinstein and the Me Too movement, there's a much more frame of reference for me to, to explain what's happened to my life and my daughter's life. If, if I had been silent about her rape at the age of two by her father, I would still have my career, I'd still be a professor, I'd still have my homes, I'd still have my friends, I'd still have an income, employment, retirement. So some of the um, victims from Larry Nasser talked about the price that they paid by going public um, about his abuse. And, you know, one woman said she lost her friends, she lost her church. And, uh, you know, that's, that's what's happened to me as well, only much more severe, uh, severely. Oh, I'm sorry, Dr. Handrahan. I didn't even realize where I was going with that question. Uh, that's yeah. horrifying. Thank you. Well, I mean, thank you for, for being sympathetic. This is why I've written the book. So the book is not about my daughter's case and my case personally, but it's dedicated to her. And as a social scientist, um, as they started stripping everything away from me, what I did was, what the only thing I could do was I put my my PhD research degree to use, and I started researching, I thought, if this is happening to me and my daughter, it must be happening to many, many other children and, and, and mothers in America. So when I was at American University and they had taken my daughter, I started doing research and publishing on this subject in Forbes magazine and Canadian television interviews and Washington Times and The Hill. And also American University uh, president's office had asked me not to publish and write on this and had ordered American University's media department not to pitch me to journalists. So I may have also been wrongly terminated for that. I'm, I'm not sure. I'm, I am speculating. But So that was the beginning. I've been doing this research now for about eight years. And the book is sort of an accumulation of that uh, work, where as a social scientist, I took lots of data and put it together and said, is there a pattern here? And there is very much a pattern of epidemic uh, child rape across America, uh, largely uh, by white men in positions of power. In your new book, Epidemic, America's Trade in Child Rape, I was glad to see that you did not treat pedophilia as a sexual orientation. Rather, you write, quote, what is being done to our children is not child pornography, exploitation, or sex. It is rape and torture 
often meeting the Convention Against Torture definition. Some believe the term pedophilia should be pedosadism because what is being done to children is not, quote, child love, as pedophilia implies, but sadistic, violent abuse, sadism. You go on to say that pedophiles ask for pictures of babies being raped. In one instance, quote, the bloodier, the better. How widespread is this sadism? Yeah, I thank you very much for for citing that quote. I'm really grateful that you've picked up on that, Bonnie. I think this is what was also a a challenge in writing the book was to be able to get people to understand how this crime operates without without showing so much horror that people turn away. And so I, I tried not to sensationalize the crime or, or get into too much that, that people couldn't handle. The violence is, is the dominant part of the crime. So I've read hundreds and hundreds of criminal complaints. And what, what is happening is that if a man is arrested in your town for child pornography and you read the local media report or you hear about it on a radio show or TV show, the journalists will often say, He was arrested on three counts of child pornography, and he was found with 30,000 images of child pornography. And that means nothing. It didn't didn't mean anything to me until I started doing the research. What does that mean, 30,000 images of child pornography? Well, when you then get the criminal complaint, which is what I've done in my research, I would contact the law enforcement, contact the prosecutor's office, contact the courts, and get the criminal complaint. And it depends, of course, on who wrote the criminal complaint. Some of them are excellent. Some of them aren't very good. But the really good criminal complaints go into extreme detail about what the man, usually it's men, were doing. And so they'll even include in the criminal complaints the chats that the pedophiles are having online. And one you cited where the man was saying, the bloodier, the better. Um, So what's deeply concerning is that they're brutally raping and torturing the children. So my understanding from reading hundreds of criminal complaints is that the rape happens after they've committed the violence of the children, uh, that they, they get sexually stimulated by committing these acts of brutal violence uh, against the children. Another uh, one that I had used in the book because I, I felt that it reached people was a former professor at the University of Toronto who had been a deputy minister of education in Canada. So very elite, very respected in the community. And he was chatting with a mother who was offering her children for rape, who was in reality an undercover cop. And he had said something along the lines of it really turned him on to see that his lover would harm her children to give him pleasure. And so he was grooming the mother and instructing the mother on how to beat her children and harm her children. And in one picture, uh, there was a child with black children. mascara and eyeliner streaming down her face crying and he said that he thought this was very hot that it turned him on to see the child crying in pain so i I do try to make that very clear in the book and i'm glad you've picked up on that you mean the violent aspect to all of this yes yeah you write that quote pedophiles also discuss and are involved in killing children with what seems to be alarming frequency in 2000 right. for example the guardian reported you wrote about this on a, a british child snuff network 
which included a video series entitled Necros Pedo, where children were raped and tortured until they died. Many mm-hmm. of the children had been taken from Russian orphanages, end quote. And, you know, I did read that Putin signed a bill in December of 2012 that bans the adoption of Russian children by American citizens. Yes. So that was very common. So what what I what I try to explain, especially when I give talks on the book, too, is that if you think like a pedophile, you will think, how do I establish a secure supply line to children? So you're not just molesting or raping one child, you know, like like Larry Nasser, who's dominating headlines right now. Everybody was shocked that something like 150 women came forward. That's what pedophiles do if they're allowed to do that. They will rape hundreds of children over the course of of their lifetime. And what they do is they establish secure supply lines where they can continually gain access to one vulnerable child after another. So you think like a pedophile in adoptions is a secure supply line. So it's very well known if you talk to uh, lawyers who represent child sex abuse victims, they will tell you that the entire adoption industry is rife with pedophiles. There have been a number of uh, arrests of uh, men who have adopted children from Russia, who specifically adopted the children uh, with the intent of using them as sex slaves and producing child pornography uh, of those rapes and torture. Um, Another secure supply line is disabled children. So when you look at how many special education teachers are being arrested on this crime, it makes sense because a disabled child, uh, like a Down syndrome child, can't be a witness in court. So pedophiles will specifically build careers as special education teachers so that they can have constant access to severely disabled children to rape. If you start to look at doctors, which I didn't profile in the book, in the book I focused mainly on government employees, but if it's up on my Medium site, if you look at doctors, you'll notice not only pediatricians, of course, uh, being arrested for child pornography in large numbers, but pediatric oncologists. So again, if you think like a pedophile, a dead child can't be a witness. So if you become a pediatric oncologist, you're in a position like Larry Nasser, where you, you can elevate yourself, you're in a privileged position of power over vulnerable children, and you can abuse them and they're going to die before they can be a witness against you. So this is how pedophiles think. It, it's about securing supply lines to many, many, many children over decades. I'm speaking with researcher and author, Dr. Lori Handrahan. Today's show, America's Traffic in Child Pornography. I'm Bonnie Faulkner. This is Guns and Butter. And of course, you've uh, referenced Larry Nasser. Now he was uh, that Olympic coach, wasn't he? Yeah, he was a professor at uh, Michigan State University and a coach for the Olympic, the gymnast team. So I had um, been tracking that case since last year because he's up on my professor and staff list on Medium of how many professors and staff are being arrested around the country. And it's a it's a perfect case, actually. And I think it's captured America's attention because most people don't realize how these cases go Um So he was originally charged uh, on federal child pornography, and he was doing preteen hardcore PTHC, which is the brutal, violent torture of um, very young children. And so his his criminal complaint, the local journalist did very good reporting, 
and they made public his federal criminal complaints. So you can see what he was trading in, the videos that he was trading in, and the names of the videos. I mean, you can't actually watch the videos, but you can see the titles in his criminal complaint. So very often, if somebody is, is arrested and prosecuted on federal child pornography charges, that'll be the end of the case. Nobody will look and search to see if there was also hands-on child abuse. Sometimes the state won't bring charges. So, But in Larry Nasser's case, the state brought charges as well, which is what we've just seen this last trial of uh, this past week. And they also went public, uh, thanks to the Indy Star, who did great reporting, you know, asking more victims to come forward. And then we had this amazing judge who allowed every single person to stand up and do a victim impact statement. So with Larry Nasser's case, you can really see the whole scope of this. So many of the men who are being arrested on child pornography charges, they're never investigated and charged for hands-on abuse, but they're always abusing children. You can't trade in child pornography unless you're hands-on abusing a child. That's just, that's part of the nature of the crime. You write that, quote, this crime is not about sexual attraction. You go on to note that mental health officials write about, quote, attraction to prepubescent youngsters. You enumerate three key flaws in the mental health argument about attraction with regard to pedophilia. What has your research revealed about the real motives behind pedophilia? That's a great question, Bonnie. Thank you so much for for asking me that. So I do have a chapter at the beginning of the book called The Crime, where I sort of describe what the crime is before we we get into the crime. And um, I'm a social scientist. I'm not a psychologist or a psychiatrist. So people often ask me what you've just asked me. Why? Why would these men do this? And um, I don't know. And I've really tried to focus on the legal mechanics and the impunity and the investigation mechanics and also trying to detail the scope that it is an epidemic that's going on so that we could have a research agenda to create good public policies that will help stop the crime. That's really been my focus. So I I really can't tell you what motivates these, these people. I speculate about it and I have a chapter on that as well in the book. But in terms of the mental health profession, I've been, yeah, extremely disappointed by some, and I feel too many in the mental health profession, who seem to be pedophile protectors. And I do have a sentence in the book where I say, you know, you could do an entire book just on all the psychiatrists and psychologists who have been arrested for child pornography themselves. So if you become a child uh, psychologist, you know, you're putting yourself in a position of power over vulnerable children. So it's another pipeline profession, particularly for white men, to, to access vulnerable children for sex abuse. So I don't know, but the three arguments that I had in in the book about the sexual attraction, it has nothing to do with sexual attraction. That is very clear just from reading hundreds and hundreds of criminal complaints is that what they talk about all the time is their desire to harm children. So I write in the book that some of the files that I've read that they trade in torture one, two, they write, slut hurt me on the bodies of very small children before they rape them. They want to see children bound and gagged, hurt and bleed and sometimes murdered. So if there's any, quote, attraction to this crime, it's about white men in power being attracted to harm society's most vulnerable children. And then they talk about um, an automatic sexual preference for, for children. And that's not what's happening here. Pedophiles rape and abuse children because 
they can do it because we're not protecting our children. And again, to go back to the Larry Nasser example, just because it's so current in everybody's mind, this is what all of those women stood up and said, well, what's the price of a, of a child? What about us? Why didn't you protect us? And there was one young woman who was six when Nasser first started raping and molesting her, and her family didn't believe her. And her father, she, she thinks, committed suicide later because he realized that she was being sexually abused. There is no comprehensive data collection on child pornography or arrests of pedophiles, according to your book. You say that America's fastest-growing crime is one we know almost nothing about. How is it possible for child pornography to be categorized as the fastest-growing crime, and there is little detailed data about this war against children? What about the lack of perpetrator data? Yeah, the, the great. that's such a great question, Bonnie. So this is really the whole point of my book. I can't establish the data and the research that, that I'd like to because I don't have an academic position. So good research is very expensive. I'd need a position back and graduate students and money to set up a database. But we need a national database so that we can give real statistics on what's happening. Nobody has the data. And this evolved out of when I would contact journalists and I'd say, hey, you just reported on this arrest. Could you actually show the criminal complaint? And do you know how many professors are being arrested? And could you provide some context instead of just one-off arrests uh, on your daily crime beat? And they'd say, well, give me statistics, give me data. And I'd say, there is no data. Nobody has the statistics yet. So I I had a chance to speak briefly to Senator uh, Portman, who's been leading the fight on this uh, senator from Ohio. And he said that he's also concerned about the data problem. So for example... Um, the U.S. Sentencing Commission, I have that as an action item in the book. They haven't updated just the federal prosecutions for child pornography since 2012. So even if the U.S. Sentencing Commission were asked by senators and asked by the general public to provide comprehensive demographics on federal child pornography prosecutions, we would have a much better idea of what's going on. Um, we, we absolutely need to have a national database available. You write that, quote, the easy profit model of child rape is rapidly overtaking drugs and guns as organized crime's preferred moneymaker. Children are a renewable resource. They can be sold multiple times a day over many years and are easy to transport. Their rape can be sold online and in person. Their organs can be sold on the black market. End quote. This reminds me of a story in a Spanish-language newspaper here in California that reported on a truck that was stopped and searched in Mexico. In the truck mm-hmm. were dead bodies of children whose organs had been removed. I never mm-hmm. saw that story reported here in English. According to your book, pedophilia is a crime wave that is generating a lot of money. How much and for whom? Well, yeah, again, we can only speculate. And what I did was I put up some of the numbers uh, that people have been talking about. Even if we had really good research and comprehensive data, because it's an illegal industry, we would never have perfect data. But we we could have a lot better data than than what we have. So, yeah, when you talk to law enforcement and prosecutors who are on the front lines of this war against our children in America, they will tell you that they are completely overwhelmed with these cases. And they're there's no way they can even begin to keep up and that the pedophiles are far ahead of law enforcement and prosecutors. Um, 
So they will speculate, people are speculating that it has or is about to take over guns and, and drugs. And it makes a lot of sense because you're trying to sell guns or drugs. You have one, a logistics problem in transportation. Guns and drugs are difficult to transport. You have to hide them. They're heavy. They're costly to transport. A child's easy to transport. Most people don't even know that you're transporting that child for sex. You might just be a father who has custody of your child on the weekend, and you're taking that kid around the country for rape. That, that happens all the time. The men will travel, and they'll say, I have custody of my child. I'm willing to share. So nobody knows. It's not like you've got a trunk load full of, of guns and drugs. It's just a child in, in the back seat. The other thing is that you sell that a gun or a drug and that's it. But a child can be sold over and over and over again. So it's like I said, it's a, a child's a renewable resource. So if, if you are interested in that, it's a great criminal profit model. Um, you sell the child in person for the in-person rape. They always document that rape with videos and photographs and live streaming is now very, very popular. So you, you get two sales, the in-person abuse and then the videos and the live streaming and the photos of that abuse and then what they will do um, is child pornography snuff is, is very profitable. And my understanding from reading the criminal complaints is that they will slowly torture the child uh, over a period of time. And so they'll say, you know, tune in next week for the next video. And people will follow this like, like we would follow a soap opera, you know, who shot JR, T tune in next week to find out. So and then you pay more and more for the video. And then when the child's finally murdered on camera, that's, that's the high-paying uh, video. And then they can sell the organs on the black market. So it's a great profit model. What about websites and servers? Is there data on that? And, and has there been a dramatic increase in U.S.-based sites? What, what is the volume of pictures and videos of child rape being traded online? Yeah, no, it's a great question. So the Internet Watch Foundation is doing some of the very best work on this, and I detail that in the book. They're based out of the UK, and you can go on their website and see. So this past year was the very first year that Holland overtook America. But until this year, America has been producing and distributing about half of the world's child pornography. And it's a guess, right? But half of the servers that are distributing child pornography, about half, are based here in America. And that's a known fact that in Europol police reports that are publicly reported, the UK press has reported on this. Not one American journalist has reported on this. So this is one of my points of extreme frustration. If we know that about half of the servers distributing child pornography are based in America, we know where they are at, we have their locations, that's public, how come they're not being shut down? How come the media isn't reporting on this? I mean, it's just staggering the amount of child pornography that's being produced right here in America with American children and distributed around the world. I'm speaking with researcher and author Dr. Lori Handrahan. Today's show, America's Traffic in Child Pornography. I'm Bonnie Faulkner. This is Guns and Butter. You write that pedophiles joining online networks must first prove they are pedophiles. How do they do this? Right. So that's another thing that people don't often understand. So the very first thing that happens, as far as I understand uh, from all of my research, is that when a, a pedophile will try to join an online forum, a pedophile chat, a website, member-only website, 
the very first thing that will happen is that the members will say, well, we need to see your computer. You have to show us your files so that we know you're not a cop, right? So they all know that the cops, they go undercover on these chats and they're all scared. They'll talk about, I need assurances that you're not a police officer, that you're not an undercover officer. And the way that you prove that you're not a, a police officer and you're really a, a real criminal is that you open up your computer to these file sharing uh, software so that anyone you know can see what's actually on my computer and you show your collection. And so by showing your, your collection, you prove that you're a real criminal and then you gain access. So all of the sites and forums work differently. There's one that's now been shut down that was quite famous called Dreamboard. And it was really brutal, really horrific torture, very small children. And members would get points by providing the more uh, brutal videos and images that the member would provide and the newer ones. So they always want new children. It's not enough to see the same rape of the same child. They want access. Do you have somebody new? I've already seen that rape. Give me a new child. So the members would gain points by contributing. And they had it was like a buyer's club almost, meaning like you had to provide so many new videos and images every month in order to maintain your membership level, like at a gold level or a platinum level. So, um, yeah, there's a huge, huge push within the internal online pedophile community to be constantly raping and torturing children and providing new videos and images of that rape and torture into these online forums. You write that, quote, staff in child protection agencies globally appear to be key players in securing supply lines of children for pedophiles' rings. Is that right? Yeah, absolutely. So again, you got to think like a pedophile, right? So if you're a pedophile, how are you going to secure a supply line of children that you can abuse, vulnerable children, right? But another thing that I say to try to explain this to people is anywhere there are vulnerable children, pedophiles have set up shop. So people often think, oh, it's just that one-off abuse. Poor little Johnny got abused by the priest. And, you know, poor little Jennifer was abused by her swim coach. No, these men have cultivated positions and they put each other in positions of power and oversight to protect their crimes so that they can, can abuse these children. So they are in shop, whether it's a school teacher, a special education teacher, a pediatric oncologist, or a child protection officer. So what better job? If you're a pedophile, then being a child protection officer, you have constant access to vulnerable children, right, to abuse. So in terms of the child protection staff, one of the most horrific arrests was the acting director of uh, cybersecurity at the Department of Health and Human Services, DHSS. It was Timothy DeFoge, and he actually was sentenced to 25 years in federal prison. And that goes back, you had asked me earlier about the violence. So the quote uh, was that, what he was involved in was so depraved that it even shocked veteran investigators. The Fogey expressed the interest in the violent rape and murder of children and planned with other pedophiles to rape and murder children. So he's the acting director here in Washington of cybersecurity for the entire Department of Health and Human Services nationwide. Now, what's concerning about the DeFogey case is that as far as I can tell from what's been publicly available, they didn't investigate his entire ring of all the other people that he was trading with. He's head of cybersecurity for Health and Human Services. Chances are he's probably trading with other Health and Human Services employees and Child Protective Services and were children being used that had been taken into Child Protective Services on these things. Nobody asked any of those questions in that arrest. Now, 
The other element to child protective services is what is now becoming publicly known is that a lot of the people who work in anti-sex trafficking will say the foster care system is is rife with pedophiles and that so many foster care children end up on the streets being trafficked. Yeah, so it's rife with pedophiles because they have gone into health and human services as child protection officers, right? It's a secure supply line. Most images and videos seized in child pornography arrests are never investigated. Why is this? Yeah, because it's just so incredibly overwhelming. So I discussed that in the book too. Like, and I think I mentioned like Australia's database where they, I think at that time they had something like 6 million images. So here's what happens. There are very few cops on the ground who are child sexual exploitation investigators. We have so many cops on the so-called war on drugs. So you might have 200 police officers who are assigned to the drug unit, okay? And then you have two cops assigned to the child exploitation unit, which is insane because they they just can't possibly keep up. So one arrest, one arrest will will get you huge amounts of data. I mean, these guys are prolific collectors, so they don't just have one or two videos and images of one or two children. The arrests almost always have 30, 40, 50, 100,000 images and videos, right, of many, many children. Nobody has the time to sit down and look at 100,000 images and then to try to find those children. They just don't. So usually what happens is they'll, they'll go to the guy, they'll have their forensic van if they have a forensic van outside the house. They'll try to get him to confess immediately. And if he confesses immediately, then they'll do an on-site quick forensic exam of his computer where they'll get at least like three or four videos that they'll describe in the criminal complaint. You know, he had this video, this video, this video. This is all child pornography. And then they'll do deeper forensic uh, analysis of his computer. So by the time he goes for for a plea deal, they'll say, yeah, well, he had 30,000, right? So, and that's just what he'll have at the time of arrest. Uh, Very often they have huge collections that are hidden within their drywalls, in their attics. They go to huge, uh, elaborate measures to hide their collections and to protect their collections. They never want to part with these. And then they try to get them to plea. So they'll say, we're going to charge you with 10 counts of child pornography, but if you plea, we'll charge you with one count, we'll drop the others, you're going to do five years in jail. And that's, that's how it goes. They never, rarely investigate where, you know, where their hands-on abuse of other children. And I've had cops say to me that when they were in the Internet Crimes Against Children unit, doing child pornography arrests, they were never doing actual hands-on arrests of, you know, investigations of hands-on abuse. And then the same thing, the cops who are investigating child sex abuse, they're never also pulling a warrant for child pornography. So this is one thing that really needs to change within law enforcement. Every time, every time they do a child pornography arrest, they should also be putting out the word and asking people to come forward for hands-on sex abuse and vice versa. If they're arresting a man for hands-on sex abuse, they got to pull a warrant for child pornography because the two are synonymous. The problem is they just don't have the resources to do do that right now. There aren't enough law enforcement investigating this crime. In your book, you say that, quote, as early as 2009, the Department of Justice warned America that infants and toddlers were being raped in increasing numbers. Infant mm. and toddler pornography is the rape and torture of children under four years old. 
is what you write. Who is trafficking in infants and toddlers and how? If you think like a pedophile, this is a strategic decision. So under fours can't be witnesses in court. So, and there's even a book from a really brilliant Canadian journalist whose uh, work I reference in my book, where he spent a lot of time actually embedded in the child exploitation units of the police. So he had access firsthand to watch them do their investigations. And there was one father on a chat line who said, okay, you know, my my daughter is is starting to talk. So I'm going to start abusing the infant that we just had, me and my wife. And she's a little young, but I've got to start her now before she can talk. So a child who can't talk, a pre-verbal child who can't explain what's happening to them is an ideal target for a pedophile because they can't be prosecuted for that crime because there's no witness to that crime, right? So, and under fours, they aren't out on the street. They're not at hockey practice. You can't abuse them on the away game bus for soccer practice or, you know, in the church. It's parents and caregivers who are involved. So this is the other thing that there's not enough discussion about. I I reference in the book, the Canadian um, Child Protection about this time last year came out with a very important piece of research that said it's now a well-known tragedy that fathers are the leading pedophiles for, for child pornography rings, fathers with access to their children, and it's very small children. And you will also see this in the criminal complaints. The cops go on the networks and the cops will say, hey, I have my eight-year-old son for the weekend and I'm sharing him, right? And the cops say that because that's how, that's how they trade the children. Oh, my God. It's hard to believe we're even talking about this. Wow, what a deal. Yeah. My God. Yeah. Well, yeah. But that I'm glad that you say that, Bonnie, because that's what I People just say, oh, no, I don't want to. This is horrible. I don't. How could you even write this book? How, I don't want to talk about this. And what I say is that's exactly what pedophiles count on. Pedophiles count on the good people who protect children, who love children, turning away because it's too difficult to talk about. It's too painful. To, to confront, they're counting on your silence, you know, and we have to end that silence. We have to be willing to look at what's happening in our country and start protecting our children. You write that the New York Times published an op-ed entitled, quote, Pedophilia, a Disorder, Not a Crime, by Margot Kaplan, a law professor at Rutgers, who argued child rapists are not criminals, but rather vulnerable, disabled people who should receive civil rights protection under the Americans with Disabilities Act of 1990. You say that Kaplan's Op-Ed appears to be part of a well-organized strategy to create laws and norms that frame pedophiles and not our children as the victims. Did you notice any pushback in the paper against this op-ed? Yeah, no, I'm really glad you brought that up. It's just appalling. I mean, appalling (laughs) that she made that argument. I was, it was jaw-dropping. There's not enough pushback because enough people aren't aware of what's happening in this country that this has become an epidemic and how strategic the pedophiles are. So, no, there should be a lot more pushback. And the media didn't report on this widely. You know, the media hasn't yet reported on it. I'm hoping now with Me Too, Harvey Weinstein, Larry Nasser, that we'll start to have some sustained and in-depth coverage and not just a three-day news cycle so that Americans really understand what's happening. But, yeah, I mean... If you start to look at local papers across the country, you'll see all of these 
pro-pedophile pieces popping up. The poor guy, he's the one we should feel sorry for. It's just a disorder. We should treat him with therapy. This is a violent criminal act. Um, You also point out that pedophiles in Greece have been given legal disability status. It's amazing. It's just amazing. Just apart from an economic perspective, I mean, can you imagine giving every pedophile disability in America? I mean, if you look at how many are being arrested, you couldn't even afford to do that, number one. And number two, what about all these children who never even get therapy, whose lives are completely and absolutely destroyed by these criminals? Now, it, this, it makes absolutely no sense to me. These are not disabled people. This is not a, a disorder. It's not about sexual attraction. Therapy can't cure it. These are violent criminals who deserve to be behind bars. They need to be lifetime sex offender registries, and they need to be on probation for their lifetime because they almost always re commit after they get out of jail, almost always. You know, and chemical castration is a very interesting option that should be looked at more closely. I'm speaking with researcher and author Dr. Lori Handrahan. Today's show, America's Traffic in Child Pornography. I'm Bonnie Faulkner. This is Guns and Butter. You write that in May 2016, the Pentagon's Defense Security Service Director, Daniel Payne, told reporters the, quote, amount of child porn on government computers is just unbelievable. Which government agencies was he referring to? Yeah, so I I contacted his press person and I talked to them and they sent me an email back and they said he was referring not to one agency in particular, but government computers as a whole across all government agencies. And again, so that got almost no media attention. The Christian Science Monitor did one really good in-depth story on that. And a few, I think the Daily Beast and a few others uh, covered it his quote when it happened. And then that's it. It just died. Most people don't even know that he made that statement. In fact, I've just written an op-ed that I haven't been able to get published. I've sent around to the Washington Post and the New York Times and everybody called the unbelievable national security problem because just uh, two weeks ago, two more government agents uh, were arrested. One was uh, Richard Gatowski, who was with ICE, and the other was Paul Whipple, who was a border patrol agent, right? They were both members of a child sex trafficking website that provided access to more than 117,000 graphic videos of child rape and torture. Gatowski used his government ID to open his account. He's using his government ID to open an account on a child sex trafficking website with 117,000 graphic videos of child rape. So, you know, it didn't even make news. Nobody even knows that happened. It, it made the local press where they were arrested, and that's it. It just dies down. So I can't get anybody to focus on this. I don't know how you have the Pentagon's Defense Security Service Director saying that the amount of child pornography on government computers is unbelievable, and that isn't headline news. Strange that government agencies would allow access to pornography on their own computers. And how is Absolutely. this? Yeah, I mean, how can that be? And how is this a national security issue? Right. Well, it's a national security issue for several reasons. One, child pornography is is run and maintained by organized crime. You are putting uh, your government computer networks open to organized crime. 
some of the uh, child pornography is traded and produced and goes all over the world, right? So you never know who's in your network, if they're organized criminals or, or Turkish or anybody who wants to harm America. You've just opened your computer to all of that. Number two, you've made yourself available for blackmail, of course. And then number three, the amount of really high-level people in, in the government who are doing this really harms good government employees and good citizens who are simply trying to do their job. Another example I use is um, Army prosecutor and judge advocate Daniel Wolverton. He was sentenced for infant sodomy here in, in Virginia. So he was handcuffing a one-year-old, I believe it was a boy, if my memory is correct, and anally raping a one-year-old boy. I mean, can you imagine the horrific pain that that poor child was going through? He had 30,000 child rape images. So I ask, you know, would he have held his colleagues accountable for adult sexual abuse in the military workplace? An army prosecutor who was anally raping a one-year-old boy? No, he's not going to. If a, if an adult woman is raped in the workplace and he's the judge and the prosecutor, he's going to protect the pedophile. So that links into the sexual assault in the military, which there's been widespread discussion about at the adult level. And that harms all of us, right? That harms our sense of national security harms our ability to function as, as a productive civil society and, and democracy. The other thing about why it's such an incredibly important national security issue is that individual pedophiles, it's not an individual arrest, it's a highly networked crime. So this is another thing that's commonly misunderstood. A criminal committing any other kind of crime would do it alone or with one or two other people would try to hide the crime, right? Pedophiles do not hide their crime. They brag about their crime. They commit these horrific crimes. They video themselves doing it. And then they broadcast these videos everywhere, bragging about what they've done to these children, right? And they network as a team. It's one of the defining behaviors of child pornography and pedophilia is their obsessive networking. And they not only network online, they network in person because they need to share the children, right? So they know each other and they protect each other. And that's a very big problem for, for the security of our country when you have top military people. I have so many. If you go on my Medium site, I have a long list of military arrests. One was uh, Colonel Robert Joel Rice. He was a colonel at the Army War College. He was charged with 130 child pornography counts. And he had more than 30,000 images of child sexual abuse. I mean, he, he's a colonel at the Army War College, a very senior man. There have been two former Navy assistant secretaries of state. And the one that always really still bothers me was David O'Brien, who was the chief science in charge of monitoring nuclear activity around the globe at Patrick Air Force Base. So he's supposed to be sitting at his U.S. Air Force computer, seeing if there's any kind of nuclear activity that might threaten our security as Americans. And what is he doing? Instead, he's on his U.S. Air Force computer on child pornography websites and chats trading in child pornography, right? He even used Russian sources material. He took images of his own granddaughter's head and he transposed those over images of children being brutally raped and tortured. And he did the same with adult females at the, at the Air Force who were his colleagues. This is the guy who's, who's supposed to be monitoring nuclear activity. And he's masturbating to the rape and torture of children from Russian sources on his Air Force computer. How is that not a serious national security issue? 
What about those people in positions of power? How representative of the pedophilia epidemic are powerful people? I think, you know, overwhelmingly it's men in leadership positions. They cultivate those leader positions, though, to commit the crime. So whenever I'm like reading a new arrest, now it's always the same pattern. So it's always the most decorated police officer who was officer of the year. And then he also volunteered with the Boys and Girls Club. And he gave so many hours that he became a point of light awardee. And they they seek out awards and recognitions and cultivate positions of power to commit the crime. So it goes hand in hand. They're almost all white. So 80 to 90% of the federal child pornography prosecutions have been of white men. Uh, So that's a very significant element of it and a significant perpetrator profile. AP did a fabulous year-long investigation into child sexual assault in the military, and AP came up with the same results that I've come up with just in my own research that overwhelmingly in the military, it was men in positions of power. So it wasn't the entry-level private. It was the colonel, the sergeant, the lieutenant colonel, the top guys. Same with the police. If you go onto my Medium site over and over and over again, it wasn't the entry-level police officer. It was the police chief. I mean, I had so many police chiefs that I had to create a separate section just for police chiefs. What if those in powerful positions rose to the top because of, and not in spite of, the participation in child rape. Do you think this is a possibility? Oh, absolutely. But I don't know the in, in spite of or because of, but certainly they network and they protect each other. So they put each other in positions of power. They recommend each other for promotions to positions of power. So any kind of oversight and accountability is completely removed So, for instance, if you're the ombudsman in a state, like in Maine, the ombudsman for Child Protective Services was supposed to be the person that you went to if Child Protective Services wasn't doing their job. Well, in my opinion, what was going on was that the ombudsman was actually protecting the child protective workers who weren't doing their job. So, they specifically make sure that they cannot be held accountable and they they help each other rise to these levels of power. Absolutely. What about the legal profession and educators? You have chapters on these professions. Yes. Horrific. So the number one uh, amount of government employees in America are educators because of all of our public uh, school teachers. So there's a quote from a really good researcher on um, educator predators where she says that she thinks that the abuse of children by educators is far more prolific than anything in the Catholic Church, and I I would have to agree with her. I've been mainly focused on higher education, but um, there's just prolific abuse in daycares, kindergartens, primary schools, and secondary schools. USA Today did an outstanding year-long investigation on uh, primary and secondary school educators uh, who are predators, and it's just really overwhelming. Uh, For some reason, none of the higher education reporters and outlets, including the Chronicle of Higher Education, they have all refused to cover how many professors are involved in this. But um, really bad, just horrific. Back to just one point about the networking and the accountability. When I looked at professors who have been arrested, it's professors and staff who've been arrested at universities and uh, colleges. What I started to notice in the staff arrests is that 
the IT staff kept coming up over and over and over again, which makes sense. So if you're a professor on a campus and you want to be able to masturbate in your campus office to child pornography, you're going to make sure that the IT people at your campus are also doing the same thing so that they won't report you to law enforcement, right? So it's a closed system of protection. That's very common. Then I have a chapter on lawyers. I think the legal profession bothers me probably the most because they have so much power. The prosecutors and the judges have so much power. And the wrongdoing by so many prosecutors and judges is just overwhelmingly horrific to me. I mean, there was one, I profiled one judge. He had a penis pump and he was masturbating on the stand as a judge during a murder trial. And there was another judge who actually got caught trafficking children. I'm always amazed, actually, when any of these judges get caught and go to jail. But thankfully, there are some incredibly supportive and and strong law enforcement and prosecutors with integrity who will prosecute even judges and other prosecutors. It sounds like the country is going off the rails. In reading your book, I immediately thought about the foreign wars, the 9-11 wars, specifically in the Middle East, Abu Ghraib, the black sites, the promotion of torture, the use of sexual humiliation and torture on Arab prisoners, all of it. Perhaps under these circumstances, we really shouldn't be all that surprised that pedo-sadism is rampant. Yeah, I think that there are some links. You know, that's a very good point. One of the things that shocked me when I started to do this research was I would see over and over again that the man had been arrested for child pornography, including bestiality. So I started to dig into that. And so what's happening is that dogs are being trained to rape children. And uh, I was like, who, how? Who knows how to train dog? How do you even train a dog to rape a child? That's like an insane thing. And who would know how to do that? So I started researching. And of course, there have been allegations and very credible witnesses coming forward saying that the U.S. military had trained dogs to rape, to rape the Afghan prisoners, detainees, as part of a torture technique. So those dogs then come back to America. And then there's, uh, I have this also up on my site, there's some concern about where these dogs are going and how they're being rehomed. You know, they're coming back into our population. So I think that there are links there that certainly need to be researched and explored. You devote your last chapter to the way forward. What are some of the ways forward to deal with this crisis? Well, it's a great question, Bonnie. Thank you for asking that. So what I also tried to do in the book, because it is so horrific and you just want to turn away and you want to say this can't be possible, what what I wanted to do was give people tools to, to actually make a difference and to change things. So I do have action items throughout the book that anybody can do. One thing we need is improved investigations and prosecutions. And that means we need far more money to hire far more prosecutors and and law enforcement to cover the crime. We need thousands and thousands of law enforcement who are working the crime. And and right now we don't have that at all. We need better media coverage of the epidemic. So we need journalists not just to say, so-and-so was arrested today on three counts of child pornography. We need the criminal complaint made public in the media reports, and we need the journalists giving context. So saying, and this was the 20th professor who's been arrested at this university, you know, in the past six years. They don't even go back to last year. I mean, I'm looking at universities 
where there's been arrest after arrest, but every single media report will report on the new arrest as if it was the first arrest at that institution. And then people need to say, all right, you've had an arrest at your institution, so what have you done to prevent this from happening in the future? That's the unmasking and the, the documenting that I say we need to show people what's really going on here and we refuse to be silent. So anybody can call their local courthouse and they can say, I'd, I'd like to see the criminal complaint of this man who was arrested yesterday. And they can put that up on their own blog. They can send it to the journalist. They can ask the journalists to report on that and to show what's happening. We can ask and demand our institutions install software like NetClean that not only blocks uh, child sex abuse material from being traded, but reports people who attempt to trade in it. So that would take the responsibility out of the institution Dr. Lori Handrahan, thank you so much, and thank you for all of the difficult work that you're doing. Well, thank you very much for your interest and for the interview and for reading the book. I really appreciate it, Bonnie. I've been speaking with Dr. Lori Handrahan. Today's show has been America's Traffic in Child Pornography. Lori Handrahan completed her PhD at the London School of Economics and later taught at American University in Washington, D.C. She worked as an independent consultant to the United Nations on Gender Equality. She is the author of Epidemic, America's Trade in Child Rape. Visit her website at lorihandrahan.com. That's L-O-R-I-H-A-N-D-R-A-H-A-N.com. Epidemic is available from the publisher at trineday.com. That's T-R-I-N-E-D-A-Y.com and from Amazon. Guns and Butter is produced by Bonnie Faulkner, Yoramako, and Tony Rango. Visit us at gunsandbutter.org to listen to past programs, comment on shows, or join our email list to receive our newsletter that includes recent shows and updates. Email us at faulkner at gunsandbutter.org. Follow us on Twitter at GNB Radio. Release. You dig me?